Is this a great time to be in the legal profession or a bad time to be in the legal profession? It doesn't fucking matter. You're in the legal profession. Welcome to the best of the second quarter of the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Today, we'll be looking back at some of the most impactful conversations over the past several months. Buckle up. It's going to be a great one. Like, unless you're you're leaving, it doesn't really matter. Like, you're in it. And so what are you going to do with it? That's the fundamental question. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of Crisp Video, the nation's number one law firm growth company. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. Today, we're looking back at some of the most thought-provoking moments from our podcast guests, which include attorneys, entrepreneurs, and elite athletes. From building a culture that attracts and rewards A players to developing the mindset of a champion, this episode has it all. Too many people think leadership is a noun, and it's not, it's a verb. Too many people think leadership is a title or a position or where you have your office, and it's really none of those. So I think leadership is influence. And the way to gain influence with people is to intentionally add value to them. That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney Podcast. To kick things off, we're revisiting our conversation with Brian Chase, one of the most successful and highly respected trial attorneys in the nation. One of the key ways that Brian has built such a successful law firm is by running his practice like a business. I asked him to elaborate on this philosophy and how he puts it into action. You know, there's two components to that. One is the business side, and then two would be the actual legal work side. But, you know, from the business side, you've got to be innovative, as you know, with the marketing. You need marketing. You need verdicts to market. You need relationships. You need a good culture in your office. So from the business side, you've got to realize it's a business. When I was in law school, they told me, no, we're a profession. We're not a business. Bullshit. We're a business. And if you don't run it like a business, you're going to fail. And so, you know, 20 plus years ago, my partner and I, ran it like a business, investigated various opportunities like any business would do to want to grow it. And we would face our fears on that. Growth is scary. And the people I've seen that I leapfrogged over, it was because they were afraid of hiring that extra paralegal. They looked at that as money coming out of their pocket or hiring that extra lawyer. And they look at that as money coming out of their pocket. When John and I were growing this firm, it wasn't money coming out of our pocket. We're going to make money on these new people we were hiring. So that's a long way of saying we weren't afraid to grow, even though it was risky. I was on vacations a lot of time with the kids, you know, when they were three and four years old and staring up at the ceiling in the middle of the night going, well, I, you know, I could file bankruptcy, I could sell the car, I could homestead the house. You know, we all go through that, but I never let it paralyze me. So from the business side, I think what separates us from the firms that aren't as successful financially, they might be successful personally, is that fear facing that fear and and growing. And I know you can probably relate to that. I mean, look at how you guys have grown through the roof over the recent years. And there's no way you haven't had some sleepless nights, pal. No kidding. And and the thing that I'm interested in, because I know you mentioned that even 20 years ago, you guys were running it like a business. And I would love to know, like, was there something in your experience or was there something you were naturally predisposed to to know that that was the way to do it? Because you're kind of a unique case, right? Because you see a lot of you know lawyers who happen to own a business, but not as many business owners who happen to practice law, but you do both exceptionally well, which is, I mean, is, is a rarity. Yeah, I, I you know, kind of just dumb luck in what that means. I mean, I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. So I've had an entrepreneurial spirit and I look at personal injury really as entrepreneurial law. If you don't win, you don't make any money. So realizing that, that combined with my partner, we realized, you know, back in those days, there was no internet. So, you know, we had yellow page ads and that was kind of cheesy, but you know, okay, we've got to do that for business. 
go out and speak. What I've learned, or what I what I believe anyway, is with regard to the business piece and the marketing piece, what I have learned is there's no silver bullet. You know, not one thing is going to, well, if you do this, then you're going to get here. I make up a hypothetical that everything works about 10%, and, and that's not based on science. But I'd say you got to be doing 10 things to get your 100% pie, whether it's public speaking, internet marketing, you know, your videos, uh, getting verdicts, all that kind of stuff. You just have to do it all. And, you know, my partner and I, he was more into the marketing piece on, it was his idea for us to get a website. I mean, like 20 years ago. And he came to me one day and said, hey, you know, I want to get a website. And I'm like, our clients don't even have computers. No one had computers 20 years ago. What do you mean we need a website? He drove, drove the technology piece. I was kind of Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble. But I did want to be the part that I, I love public speaking. I knew you needed to do that. I knew you had to try cases to get verdicts, et cetera, et cetera. One of the key drivers of his firm's growth is Brian's approach towards leading and developing a world-class team, particularly when it comes to his principles in regards to hiring and firing. But according to Brian, this wasn't always his forte. I'm a nice guy. People that have worked with me are nice people, but you know when they're not cutting it. You know, you usually know within months, but you know, six months in, a year in, well, they're not cutting it. I used to keep those folks around for three, four, five years. I'll, I'll fix it, I'll fix it. You're not doing them any favors and you're not doing yourself any favors. So I have really learned, I don't think I'm good at hiring, but so my rule of thumb is now just hire fast and fire faster. And, and I don't mean that in a negative way because it can kind of sound brutal. And you're not doing anybody any favors by trying to make them better at a job that they just aren't good at. And they may be good at something else and really good. So I read this book, Jack Welsh, former uh, CEO of GE, called Winning. And he talked about A players, B players, and C players. You know, your A players, you keep those around. Your Bs, you try to make an A. And your Cs are below, you get rid of them. And uh, so, you know, Bisner and I, we call people at our office, you know, superstars. You know, are you a superstar? If you are, you can stay. If you're not, you're going to go. And my favorite story, to make it sound like I'm not, you know, this mean human being is I had a, a guy who just was terrible, but it doesn't mean he's going to be not be excellent at something else, something I can't do. And so I had the kid come in you know, I had to let him go. He was teared up, you know, newly married guy. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And I felt terrible, but it just wasn't working and I'm not doing anybody any favors. And I bumped into this kid several years later in the airport, had his suit on looking all professional and he walks up and he goes, Hey, Brian, how are you? And I go, Hey, Great to see you. And he stops me and he goes, I want to thank you for firing me. He goes, it's the best thing anybody could have done. I'm getting goosebumps again now I tell this story. It's the best thing anybody could have done for me. I forget now and I wish I could remember what he had gone on to do, but he's done something on his own. He's got his own business. He's an entrepreneur and was on his way to being very successful. So he's a superstar. He just wasn't a superstar paralegal. And whatever he's doing, I probably would be a deep player in that company. It's very important, I think, not to try to fix people. You're not helping your business. You're not helping them. And you're not serving your clients properly. But I do want to highlight the fact that it was not always this way. From what I recall reading at one point that when you guys started the firm, there were times you were maxing out credit cards, like anything to not miss a payroll. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, you know, I'm, I'm happy to say the firm has been around. It, it, you know, it predated me since 1978. Um, you know, I came on board in college in the late 80s and partnered up in the 90s. We've never missed a payroll. But I can tell you, there were times where if a settlement check didn't come in before the first or the 15th, someone's not getting paid, you know? So we had a lot of those, those struggles and you're right. 
when you're new in business, no one wants to give you a credit line. And so what Bisner and I had, I had, you know, you know, whether it was 10 credit cards or eight or 12, I don't remember, but I had a bunch of credit cards with, you know, $10,000 limit, $5,000 limit. I think my Whopper might've had 12 grand on it. And we had these credit cards and that was our credit line, man. We'd max those things out. So yeah, the early years, we had those financial struggles, didn't deter us. You know, we stayed motivated. And, you know, if you look back and you could probably say the same thing, I think we all perform so well when our back's against the wall. You know, I mean, you are just so in the moment on really getting that. Not that you want to have your back against the wall all the time, but, you know, it's pretty interesting because, you know, you put your nose to the grindstone and you make sure you come out the other side all right. Hey, look, you've been in the game a long time, I think at this point, over 30 years. And I believe I asked you this a few years ago at one of our conferences. We were talking about like the future and you mentioned something along the lines that you still have 10, 15 year goals that like you're just as excited now as you were even 20 years ago. Oh, and maybe even more excited. It's almost even, I'm every bit as excited. And then the older I get, I've got less time to do it. So now I'm even more excited because now I got to pack it in. You know, when you're in your 20s and 30s and 40s, Eh, you know, the future will take care of itself and you've got your short term and mid range term and long term goals. You know, now that I'm getting older, it's every bit as fun and in some ways even more exciting because now I got to pack it in because I'm, I have zero desire to retire. I've still got goals I haven't attained. And as soon as I attain those, then I'll have new goals. You know, whenever I hit a goal, I go, well, damn it, I set that bar too low. You know, I remember I did that when I was a kid. Well, if I can make X a year, you can't even spend that amount of money. And then when you hit that goal, you realize, wow. That's nothing. And then you triple or quadruple the goal. And I've always been able to hit those goals. And so if you kind of get into the whole spiritual stuff about manifesting and and attracting things and vision boards and all that kind of stuff, I have really seen in my life when I hit those goals, they end up happening. So, I've, you know, the mistake I've made is setting goals too low. So I got some whoppers now, Michael, and uh, I'm just going to keep on cranking until the good Lord says I'm done. And this is, by the way, this is a judgment-free podcast because I know we talk about a lot of financial targets, which to me, it sounds like at this point that these are, this is just a scoreboard, if you will. But it's interesting to, you know, to see the business case for that. So meaning that in order to even hit these financial targets, providing amazing customer service and client experience is a necessity. Having great outcomes and results for clients is a necessity. So you're doing a very good thing. But I'm curious, like, how do you define success? There are so many different successes. I mean, first and foremost, uh, you know, just big picture being happy. If you're not happy, you know, both at work, you know, your, your professional and non-professional life, then you're not successful. Um, and so I would just define it as happiness first and foremost. And then there are different things that make people happy and whatever those are, then you're a successful person. I'm very lucky. And I can say this with a, with a straight, you know, I was born, you know, a relatively poor kid. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was three. My mom was raising me, you know, living in apartments. We didn't have a lot of money. I didn't know I didn't have a lot of money. I had the happiest childhood on the planet. But I look back on it and I remember, you know, Schwinn Stingrays were the bike you had to have back in the 70s. My first Schwinn, I got at a garage sale. We couldn't buy a brand new one. But I didn't know I was being left out on not getting a new Schwinn. It's like, I got my Schwinn. So I could look at at the beginnings I've come from. I could have looked when I've hit financial marks. I'm no happier today than I was then. So when I, when I, and I hope people don't ever, when I talk about success or, or these benchmarks, it's, it's fun to, to have money and, and, and get nice stuff, but I'm not one ounce happier than I was this little poor kid living in Southgate in one of the suburbs of LA, living in our one bedroom apartment where my mom let me have the bedroom and she slept in the living room on a couch that made out into a bed. 
Brian proves that with the right mindset and work ethic, there's no obstacle that can't be overcome. And speaking of obstacles, our next guest quite literally wrote the book on them. Ryan Holiday is the best-selling author of The Obstacle is the Way, The Timeless Art of Turning Trials into Triumph, which is based on the stoic exercise of framing challenges as opportunities. I began our conversation by asking Ryan to define in his own words, what is stoicism? We tend to think of philosophy as this sort of abstract theoretical thing. And it can be that, but it's also, I guess, sort of like the law. It's meant to be applied. It's meant to sort of meet the rubber of the road of real life. And it's probably not a coincidence that uh, a big chunk of, if not most of, of the Stoics in ancient Rome were lawyers in, in some capacity or another. But the idea of Stoicism as a philosophy is basically rooted around this idea that we don't control what happens, we control how we respond. And what I love about the Stoics and why I think they remain relevant today is that the Stoics weren't necessarily known for their brilliant writing or their beautiful writing. They were known for what they actually did, like in real life. You know, Marcus Aurelius is, is not just the emperor of Rome. He's the emperor of Rome during the Antonine Plague. So this idea that it, you know, it seems eerily relevant today, it's for a good reason. Like he was going through what we are going through. So I think what struck me about Stoicism was its simplicity, its straightforwardness, and then ultimately that it is a set of solutions to life problem, life's problems, the daily occurrence of obstacles being, you know, the sort of most important part. Yeah. You know, and then you later go on and you talk about like steadying your nerves and controlling your emotions. But what's what's the difference between the two? I mean, I think they're definitely related to each other. I saw this during the pandemic. Uh, you know, I had a friend of mine who was sort of in a not great spot, like location wise. And I said, hey, you know, come. I've got a house you can stay in. Come stay in the house in Austin. And they were very worried and very scared. And it was very clear to me that this was impairing their ability to just make a fucking decision. Do you know what I mean? And so often what happens under pressure, under difficulty, under stress is we kind of lock up. We lose our head. We lose our confidence. While this is understandable, it makes the problem worse, right? Like this person just froze. And I think we see this in business. You know, a competitor moves into your space. There's some new regulation. You hire the wrong person. And instead of being able to look at it and decide and then make a move, you're just stuck. You're looking at the unlimited options, or you're looking at the fact that you have almost no options. You're looking at all the things that could go wrong and you just sort of lock up. And I think part of the sort of nerve and coolness under pressure, Hemingway defined courage as grace under pressure, is the ability to just be like, okay, here's what we're doing. It might not work out. I might be making a mistake, but I'm going to just do it because what I'm not going to do is just stick here and freeze. And I know you state that if an emotion can't change the condition or the situation that you're dealing with, it's likely an unhelpful emotion. Yeah, I think people think that stoicism is the absence of emotions, because that's sort of what the, you know, the word means in the English language. I think what the Stoics are really focused on is destructive emotions. Does this emotion make it better or worse? Or does holding on to this emotion longer than I ought to make it better or worse? That's really what we're thinking about. So this is unfair. I've been screwed over. This is not my fault. Why me? I'm never going to recover. They, they may well be true, but are they moving the ball forward in any way? I know you speak a lot about like perceiving and observing and, and, and practicing objectivity, but what are some practical ways for, let's say, business leaders to approach situations more objectively? 
Well, one of the things I always, I find as an exercise is like, what would I tell someone to do in my position? We're very good at telling our friend, like, you got to fire this person, or you just got to let this client go. You got to admit you were wrong, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then when it comes to us, because we know so much more, we're so much closer to it, we have a lot more trouble with it. So in a way, this is what consultants and advisors and mentors are really good at and really important. You know, you want to be able to see your position with as much distance or objectivity as possible. And sometimes that means just getting out of your own perspective and looking at it from somebody else's perspective. We talked about perception. I want to talk about taking action because... Ultimately, we've talked about how we can change how we think and feel, but it seems that most progress is made not just by you know feeling better, but getting better. The mindset is key. Uh, perception is key. But we're not talking about the secret here, manifestation. Like you have to take action, right? Perception tees up action because by focusing on what's in your control, by focusing on what's positive, by focusing on your response, you now have a direction to go in. But if you don't go in that direction, all you're doing is playing around in your mind. You're not changing anything. So, so yes, for the Stokes, it's about action. And for people who are sort of uh, want to know where we're going, where perception action will, there's this great quote from Marcus Aurelius. He says, objective judgment now at this very moment. Then he says, unselfish action now at this very moment. And then he gets to the third discipline, which we'll get to of willing acceptance. But I think it's key too. It's not just like action. So this pandemic hits, there's a problem in your business whatever. It's not just like, hey, what's good for me, right? It's what are my obligations and responsibilities as a leader, as a head of a family, as a, as a member of a family, as a member of a community, you know, as a member of an industry. We take action, but it's not just action at the expense of other people to the benefit of oneself. And I know we'll talk about a lot of these things, which I think at times seem theoretical because there's always people listening that are like, that's great but what do I do? And when we talk about taking action, uh, I love you mentioned at one point that really courage at its most basic level is really just taking action. But I want to delve deeper into that. Where, where does courage come from? Courage is a key stoic virtue. Courage is the, yeah, as we said, it's the ability to take action. You know, courage is not having no fear. Courage is taking action despite that fear. Um, and we talked about sort of locking up. That's what tends to happen. People lock up, they, they get in their own heads. But as the person who's the head of a company, again, the head of a family, a member of a community, what are you going to do about this problem? Because the problem is not going to solve itself. I focus on what am I going to do? And I think a key part of this is like, what's the smallest thing I can start with right now? As a writer, you, you don't write a book in a sprint. You show up and you've, you write the first page. What can you do right now today? How can you get a little bit better today? And I think that's true also when you find yourself you know, in some massive hole, you know, you get screwed over by a partner, your your business goes way down, you have to declare bankruptcy. How do you come back from that? One step at a time. I mean, it's, I wish there was a magical transformative solution, but it's really a one step at a time kind of thing. In so much of what we talk about is really just what what type of behavior, what type of mindset, what type of perception is, is going to be the most productive for you. I mean, that's really what it comes down to. And there's a part where you talk about just preparing for none of it to work. So if someone's going to prepare for none of it to work, how do they balance that with, with also wanting to apply a significant enough amount of effort to it actually being successful? Well, I, I tried to set it up so it's perception, then you take the action, 
And so, okay, you've thought about it in this creative way. You've applied all your resiliency and determination and creativity to it. Hopefully, most of the time, that's going to be successful. You know, there were people who pivoted, they did this, they did this, but it may just be that now fundamentally the economics of the industry or the region or the area that they're in, it's just not viable anymore, right? And what I don't want that person to do is to take that so personally to so identify with how they've been doing things that they think they need to hold on to it forever when it may well be that what's called for is a tactical retreat here and a a new business or a new way of doing things or just because you've gone down a road pretty far doesn't mean you go down that road forever. What's also important is like, look, life will kick your ass. Like you don't win every time. And so if you are so determined and so persistent that you never have the ability to just accept, okay, this didn't go how I wanted it to go, this didn't work out, you're gonna end up enduring something longer than you actually should endure it. So when I talk about prepare for nothing to work, that leads into that third discipline of stoicism, which Marcus Realist defines as the willing acceptance of external events or things that are outside of your control. So it seems like at the end of the day, there's always going to be more obstacles, whatever this year holds and the future years and so on. So what are some of the best ways you recommend people prepare themselves for future obstacles? So I talk in the book about James Stockdale, who was in a prison camp in in Vietnam. He shot down the highest ranking uh, American taken prisoner. And uh, Jim Collins talks about this in Good to Great, but it's sort of a famous story from Stockdale. Stockdale is asked, you know, who really has the most trouble? in the camp. And he says, oh, that's easy. The optimists. He says, the people who said, this will be over by Christmas. We'll be out of here in two weeks. The war is about to end. Those people got their heart broken and their hopes dashed over and over and over and over again. Viktor Frankl talks about this in in Man's Search for Meaning as well. He talks about a prisoner who was convinced like on April 4th, 1943, they would all be freed. And uh, quite hauntingly, that guy dies on April 4th. Um, he had just enough hope to get to that point. And then something that's outside of his control, you know, doesn't happen. And now they can't survive. So Stockdale says the optimists are crushed. So he says the key is unflinching acceptance of the situation at hand. No sugarcoating, no fantasy, no magical thinking. It is what it is. It's going to last a long time. It's not up to me. But he says, at the same time, he said, I knew that if I did survive, I would turn this into an event that in retrospect, I would never try to change, that I would never give up. And so that's, to me, that's the core of stoicism. It's not, oh, everything's awesome. Everything's great. I'm going to get through everything. It's like, no, shit is real. Shit is raw. Shit is hard. But If I'm lucky enough to make it through, if I can hang on, I'm going to try my best to hang on. If I do get through, I'm going to have learned a lot about myself, about my business, about my life, about the world. And I'm not going to waste the fact that I did survive, the fact that I did experience these lessons. And I'm going to be profoundly better for what has happened. Stoicism is all about reframing your perspective to focus on what you can actually control and to tune out the things that don't matter. Marcus Limonis approaches entrepreneurship with a similar perspective. 
As a seasoned CEO, investor, and the host of CNBC's The Profit, Marcus has made a name for himself by guiding businesses of all sizes across numerous industries to achieve transformational growth and profitability. He believes that no matter how many variables you may manage in your business, the success of an organization ultimately boils down to three key factors, people, process, and product. I always philosophically knew that the people mattered and the process of how you run your business mattered and the product mattered. But I'll, I'll take an extra minute and sort of break it down for people. When I talk about people, process, and product, it's really quite simple. And I wanted to dumb it down for educational purposes so that people can hear it and see it and swallow it in a way that's digestible. But the layman's version of it is you can't be in a business and sell a product or a service that people don't need or can't relate to. And the silliest example would be if I told you that I was going to open up a company and sell A-Track cassettes. I'm going to have an amazing supply chain process. My people are spectacular. We have a great system inside of our business. Process is refined. Our marketing is great. But the reality of it is, is that people don't want A-Tracks. So the product has to be relevant. It has to be market competitive. And it has to be something that people actually want today and tomorrow. On the process side, it really is simple as how do you take a relevant product or service? And I can use legal services as an example. How do you take that service and deliver it to the consumer in a way that they're not intimidated by it, the way that they understand it, and the way that they'll accept it, adopt it, embrace it, and engage? And ultimately, you know, we all think about the practice of law or the practice of medicine. And as consumers, we want to know that we're going to be able to understand it financially and understand what we want out of it and how it's going to be delivered to us. Okay, so we've gotten through the process and the product, and that's sort of the easy part. The hard part for me was always trying to explain to people how people, the people that actually run the business, the people that actually transact with the company, the vendors that support the business, or the guy or the gal that owns it, ultimately determine if the product or the process get executed or not. And if I liken it to something very simple like a lemonade stand, we all know what a lemonade stand looks like and we all know what lemonade tastes like. But if we don't engage with the person selling the lemonade and we don't buy off on why we're buying it from them, and we don't have a relationship with them and they don't engage with us in a way that's understandable and non-intimidating, we won't buy their lemonade. And so it's funny because this is the first time that I've actually thought about applying my three P's to the legal field. And some people would say, look, a lawyer has a bad rap, which I think they do. They're delivering a protective service to the community. I want to be clear with what I mean by that. A protective service, not a housekeeping service or a car mechanic service or a doctor service, but a protective service that's ultimately going to advance my business or advance my family, one of the two. And I need to understand how to deliver that in a way. And I always wanted to be a lawyer. In fact, in the summer between uh, my high school years, I worked at a law firm in downtown Miami. I worked in the mailroom. And I remember people saying to me, you know, you're wasting your time working in the mailroom. And I learned early on that I was understanding how the, the entity operated and I understood how the personalities interacted. And I got a chance to see all these different people. And 
as years went on, I started doing more. For me, the best job I ever had, no BS, was working in the law firm to understand how this firm represented families and businesses that were in crisis, that were in growth mode, that were in dispute, that needed to protect an idea that they had, and that ultimately gave me the gateway to how to framework things as I move forward in business. Most people are intimidated by lawyers. Sometimes I am too, I guess, you know, especially when they chase me and they, they want to you know, pursue things from me. But in most cases, I see them as assets and resources. And, uh, and that's why the people side of things matter, because if you have a relationship with somebody that's more than transactional, it ultimately works. So from the early childhood business of, of selling candy to now leading thousands of employees across you know, multiple cities, I have to ask, I mean, what's that experience like? I mean, is there anything that can prepare you for that? And, you know, on the other side of this, you work with a lot of small businesses and smaller teams. What are the biggest differences between what you experience at Camping World versus the businesses you help? You know, the 12,000 or 13,000 employees that we have at Camping World and the size of the business is nothing more than extra zeros. The principles behind running a small coffee shop and running a $7 billion business are ultimately the same. Yes, the product you're selling is different. And yes, there's a bigger system and a bigger infrastructure. But the theories, I think, are they're relatively the same. And when I look at the lessons from running a candy business to running a $7 billion business, I'm not sure that they're really different. The problems are more complex and the, and the resources are more bountiful. And so the, the downside of running a small business is that you're really lacking a lot of resources in your mind. And you walk into a scenario where you believe that you can't compete with somebody bigger than you because your bank account is smaller, because your internet site is smaller, because your buying power is smaller, because your marketing prowess is lower, because your talent pool is different. And I think all the things that I just mentioned quite frankly, end up just being nothing more than excuses. I think what's helped me help smaller size businesses is to take all these learnings and all these mistakes and all these challenges that I've had in my own life and remind them that really two plus two is four, no matter what the size of the business is. Interacting with an employee is the same regardless of the size of the business. Responding to a lead with a customer and doing it in a professional manner, in a timely manner, has nothing to do with the size of the business. And this idea that small or big should dictate the way you run your business, I think, is a bit flawed. And with the lessons you've learned over the years, what's your number one non-negotiable as CEO? The mistreatment of coworkers and the mistreatment of, of other people. You know, you can have an opinion about the way you run your business and if I showed you my phone now, you'd see hundreds of texts that I let any of the 12,000 people text me about anything other than their pay. But the one non-negotiable that exists in any business that I'm involved in is we can disagree, we can argue like brothers and sisters, but we can never disrespect each other. And if you do, it's you, you don't work here anymore. And it doesn't really matter. And I know that sounds a little superficial, but you know, we spend more time at work than we do with our families. And the last thing I want to do is hang out with somebody that I don't like or that doesn't like me. And Marcus, shifting gears from that, with all the things you're involved with, what are some of the, the daily habits that you practice like, that help to keep you on track and that's operating in a, in a peak state? 
Recruiting, 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 recruiting. I, I wake up every day and I wonder where am I going to find the next great talent? And I know that I'm struggling as a leader because of my deficiencies in certain areas. I'm not a technology guy. I'm not the best marketing guy. I don't know how to manufacture something. I don't know how to you know, repair a car. I don't know how to do a lot of different things. And so the only thing that I do know how to do is identify good talent and put them in positions where they can run businesses better than me and receive compensation that's better than they had before. But I, I spend the bulk of my time recruiting. Second thing that I do is I'm a list maker. If I showed you all my papers, I'm a doodler, but I'm really a list maker. And when I go to bed the night before, I write down the four or five things that I have to get done tomorrow and the four or five things that I'd like to get done tomorrow. And I work hard to the best of my ability to try to knock those things out, not because I need to feel accomplished, but because other people are relying on me. And I learned that the bigger that my holdings got and the more that I required people to have to get approval from me, the more I became a cog in their wheel. And so that's why recruiting became so important because I just, people can't be waiting for me to get to them. You hinted at this earlier, but it seems like you get a lot of advice. I'm just curious, what's been the best advice you've received and, and perhaps the worst advice you've received? The worst advice that I've received is don't change and always be yourself. The best advice I've received is be who you are, but understand that the world changes and the people around you change. And in both cases, they gave me permission to be myself. But in one case, they acknowledged the need to be a chameleon. And so I, I don't want anybody to tell me not to wear purple gym shoes or not to fight for people. But I think it's okay if people wiser and smarter than me say, I know that your intent is pure and I know that your, your goals are pure. But I think if you went about it this way, it may be better for you and it may be better for others. So try it this way. And I love feedback. I love constructive feedback. And I usually, oddly enough, I seek feedback from the oddest of places. I seek it from not the wealthy people or the successful people as America defines it. I seek feedback from the most unassuming people and places because they're closer to reality than I am. Marcus is clearly passionate about helping business owners achieve success. Our next guest has a similar level of drive, but channels it in a very different way. Mark Beaumont has pushed the limits of endurance over the past 20 years and remains the fastest person to have cycled around the planet. One of my favorite moments from our conversation was when Mark shared the inspiration behind setting and achieving his first world record. So, I mean, cycling around the planet, it's such a simple concept. I was inspired when I was a teenager by Ellen MacArthur, uh, who single-handedly sailed around the planet. And I assumed that the round-the-world cycling record would be the most coveted, the most professional ultra-endurance uh, cycle record in the book. It's the world. Of course, it should be the biggest. And yet, when I spotted it back in 2007, when I started uh, this journey, it had barely been touched. I mean, I don't want to be unkind to anyone who has cycled around planet Earth, but the record stood at 276 days, which is very slow. I don't think it was really me being a great bike rider. Lots of bike riders could ride a century a day for half a year if they had to. It was more just 
that sense of enterprise, that sense of backing myself and going, why is this not being done properly? And why have the last three people come home within a few days of each other? Well, guess what? They're trying to beat each other. So to create this massive leap in performance was very simple. Just set my own plan, you know, go out there. But what an adventure, you know, can you imagine you've never traveled? I mean, I traveled to Europe and like East Coast US, but Scotland's a small country up here on the sort of North Atlantic to then suddenly be on your own on a push bike going through Iran, Pakistan, skirting the Helmand province under police escort, going through 3,000 miles of outback into a cracking headwind. I mean, to say this was, it was more of an adventure for what happened off the bike than on the bike. Riding 100 miles a day is easy enough, but, you know, where am I going to sleep? Where's my next meal? How am I going to get by? And I was 22 years old. I was a kid. I mean, I look back now and I think, my God, you know, I was... I, I took a lot of risks, but what did I have to lose? I was I was a graduate with a perfectly good economics degree going, I want to go on a big adventure. I didn't think it would become the career that it has. I just thought, why not? If I've only got one chance, let's cycle around the planet. At what point, even on that ride initially, like did you feel, okay, I've got this, right? Because you you beat the record by over 82 days. Like, was there a point where you're like, I'm I'm gonna crush this? I never doubted that. Because Here's the painful bit. I did exactly what I set out to do. I said I would come home in 195 days, which was a plan of 100 miles a day plus a day off a fortnight for flights and contingency. I came home in 194 days and 17 hours. So if you go 18,000 miles within eight hours of your plan, you've got to be pretty honest and say, well, I just did what I set out to do. So you feel like it's your personal best. You feel like you left it all out there because it's the hardest thing you've ever done. But you've got to be brutally honest and look in the mirror and go, you'll never do better than what you set out to do. You'll never do better than what you set out to do. So you've got to get that intent right. Otherwise, human nature, you'll go nuts if you can't justify where you end up. And if you look at all my expeditions over the years, with due respect, I've never tried to break anyone. Even though I'm in the business of world firsts and world records, I've never tried to beat anyone. I've, with respect, done research on what other people have done. I know my history, but then I have the quiet confidence in the team around me to go, what is possible? And then you create those targets, build a plan around it. And what you tend to do is create these leaps in performance. You know, the second time I cycled around the world, I broke the world record by 37%, but I broke my target by 1.44%. So again, you look in the mirror and you go, I left it all out there. That's unbelievably hard. And yet, guess what? You did what you set out to do. So physically, was it hard? Yeah, for sure. But now looking back, it was kindergarten. First time around the planet, it was only hard because of where I was in my life at that point. Guess what? Once you get to one horizon, you can see the next, but you can't see the second horizon until you've climbed that first mountain. And as somebody who's done this my entire career, nobody can fall out of bed and go, do you know what? I'm going to break that record unless they've earned their stripes, unless they know what it, this is not about academic learning. There's, there's better bike riders within a mile of where I live here. I'm not the world's best bike rider, but the, the toolkit, the teamwork, the entire strategy to smash records is not just about something you can learn in a book or, you know, on a club ride. It's something you've got to earn through hard miles. And that gives you a perspective on what's possible, which is different from what other people do. 
So I want to talk about the differences between the you know, 2008 and then the ride in 2017. I mean, uh, you know, the, the obvious difference was it went from 194 days, your record to 78 days, right? So you, you, you destroyed even your previous record, which was, was amazing. You did it in under 80 days, but I'd love to know just what were the differences even in you at that time? Because I imagine, you know, doing the math, one of your daughters was, was born, maybe, you know, both you, you were married, like it was very different from age 22, Mark. So if you could speak to that. Yeah, it couldn't have been more different. I mean, you've got to keep in mind in the decade in between, I'd done lots of different projects and started and been involved in other businesses. So I've had a pretty varied career. I've been you know, lucky over the last 15 years to, to have quite a portfolio. But what really fascinated me more than anything else was, again, my obsession, the ultimate, the world. How fast can you get around planet Earth? And by doing that under human power, you know, that's a bicycle. You know, we both love riding our bikes. How fast can you get around planet Earth? I don't understand why more people haven't tried this. Considering how many phenomenal bike riders there are, there's very few people who have stepped up to the, the around the world. I mean, a lot of people are racing, like race across America or transcontinental or pretty significant endurance races, but it's the world. Like, why are there not pe more people going around the world? And I'd watched with awe and with interest the male and female record getting smashed in that decade. And um, it stood at 123 days. At no point was I uh, sort of jealous of that and records are there to be broken. But I did think with all my experience, I thought, hang on, you could take this to a whole other level. Because so many of my records over the years had been about the stuff off the bike. You know, where am I going to get my next meal? Where am I going to sleep? Like there was always things taking away from the performance aspect. And as an athlete, and I'm sure you'll relate to this well, Michael, I wanted just to have one opportunity in my life to put all my cards on the table and say, what is the ultimate? Almost to the point where I didn't mind if I failed because I just wanted the opportunity to just go, what is my Everest? If all the unknowns were taken care of, what is humanly possible? All the cards on the table, I'm all in. Very few people in their careers have the opportunity to go all in. Most of us just get by and try and get through our emails. It's such a privilege to be able to say, I'm all in. And just to figure out what that is, max effort. 18,000 miles, the 80-day dream is a bit of a one-time prize. If you can be the first person to get around the, the planet in less than 80 days, you know, that was a Phileas Fogg fiction. It was a Disney movie. It's, you know, everyone knows around the world in 80 days. So to be the first to do that is a bit of a one-time prize. And we figured out how to do it. You know, 75 days riding, three days flights, two days contingency. I built a team of 40 people between logistics, performance, and media, and I trained. Two and a half years. It was, it was an obsession. It was an amazing journey. And as you say, I had kids. You know, when I, when I left college and university, I, I didn't have a care in the world. Apart from working in a bar and pulling pints and being a student, Whereas by the time you're at mid thirties, you've got a career, you've got responsibilities, you've got, you know, a couple of mortgages. It's a totally different thing to say, do you know what? I'm all in. And, um, it wasn't worth really thinking about what feeling would have been. I mean, for the bike riders and athletes out there, I was riding twice the hours every day. So I was riding 16 hours a day rather than eight. And for every one of those hours, I was riding significantly faster. So to compare the first time around the world and the second time around the world is hard. And if people think 15 miles an hour is slow, which it is for a club ride, try and do it 16 hours a day. 
and then wake up after five hours sleep and do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day, every single day for two and a half months. Most bike riders would just fall to bits. Their knees would explode. You know, their mind would just bend. Their backside would uh, not tolerate it. It's just an insufferable amount of time racing your bike. It's 1,100 hours time trialing. And I don't think there's many people listening to this podcast that will be able to quantify that. If you were to drive 16 hours, that's a long drive. Ride your bike, take five hours break and do it again every single day for the next two and a half months. Uh, It's not an arrogant thing to say that there's no reference point in the history of endurance cycling before we did it to know that was even possible. And Mark, I'm sure I'm not the only one wondering this, but what do you think about on these rides? I mean, you're riding 16 hours a day, day after day. Like what's, you know, what are you thinking about? Oh, everything. I mean, the wonderful thing about um, expedition riding is it might be brutally hard. Um, same when you're climbing a mountain. And yet it's also life at its simplest. It's about progress, physical progress. It's about hydration, nutrition, sleep. So we're not spinning plates. We're not trying to get through our emails or multitasking with the kids or, you know, it's it's just a process. It's a journey. So life is hard but simple when you're on these expeditions and you have time to finish your thoughts. You have time to really d- think deeply about the past, the future, your motivation. Sometimes you just geeked out on data and you're, you're, you're there as a performance athlete, but you don't need to do that all the time. So your mindset's in a totally different place at four o'clock in the morning when you're trying to get going than when you are late in the day and you've got the big miles behind you. So the answer is everything because you've got time to think. And people always conflate time on your own with boredom or loneliness. You know, the old cliche where you can be very bored and lonely if you're in a city you don't know, surrounded by people who you can't connect with. And yet I've never been at 6,000 meters on a mountain or in the middle of a desert and felt sorry for myself or lonely because I've chosen to be there. I've put myself in that situation. And the momentum of that journey is what gives me that sort of narrative, that sort of thought process to keep going. There's always something to think about. It seems like a vast amount of time, but I would put the challenge back to people listening. How distracted is your life? How many thoughts do you get to finish? I would much prefer to have moments in my life where I do have that space. And ironically, I spend half my life on expedition wishing I was at home because it's brutal. And then I spend half my time at home wishing I was an expedition for that simple flow that space, that ability to focus on one task. During Mark's record-breaking journey, he understood that success is a team effort with a support team of over 40 people aiding him on his journey to breaking world records. Our next guest understands the essential role that a leader plays in an organization's success. In fact, he believes that everything rises and falls with leadership. John Maxwell is the foremost international expert on all things leadership, and I began our conversation by asking John how he defines leadership. Well, I define leadership as influence, nothing more, nothing less. Too many people think leadership is a noun, and it's not, it's a verb. Too many people think leadership is a title or a position or you know, where you have your office, and it's really none of those. So I think leadership is influence. And the way to gain influence with people is to intentionally add value to them. And I think that anyone can learn how to lead. I don't think I don't think everybody has the same leadership capacity, but I think everybody can learn how to influence people and how to add value to people that gives them more influence. And so I teach leadership basically as 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 something that helps you to 
influence other people and add value to them on a daily basis. And when we talk about leaders, I mean, what are some of the key differences that you've seen between effective and ineffective leaders? There are a lot of differences. In fact, I have an expression, everything rises and falls on leadership. That's the question you're just asking me right there, Michael. You know, what's the difference between those who make leadership rise for people and then those who, you know, it kind of crashes with people. And, and there are several things, and we don't have time for all of them, but I, I would start with the main thing. And I, I think the main thing is the motive of a leader. I think there's a very thin line between motivation and manipulation of people. And motivation is always right, and manipulation is never right. When I motivate people, leaders motivate people, they move people. Motivation is, is moving people for mutual advantage, where manipulation is moving people for my personal advantage. And I think, that, I think the challenge, Michael, with leaders is that I think we usually start off kind of pure, but as we're successful, we build our business and, and uh, increase our clients and make a lot more money. I think all of a sudden we begin to take leadership and almost begin to turn it to it's about me and it's about you helping me and you serving me and, and you making me better. And I, and I think the moment that, that leadership begins to be for me instead of for you, that's when I start manipulating you. That's moving people for personal advantage. And of course, that's always wrong. So I think there are a lot of differences between good leaders and not good leaders. But I think the big difference is why do you, you know, want to lead? So when, when I have people say, because they know I do leadership, they say, I want to be a leader. I always say, well, I'm glad to hear that. But then I say, why? Why do you want to be a leader? And if it's for the reward of, of leadership or the purpose of leadership, there's going to be problems. If it's for the responsibility of really helping and making a difference, then you're going to probably be good. But that's, that's a big difference, just the motive of why do I lead? That's for sure. Yeah. I was going to say, before we even delve into speaking about leading others, you know, there's, there's always talking about the area that's even more challenging, right? And that's, that's leading ourselves. You, know, you almost wonder, like, where, where, do you, where do you begin with that? Well, I begin with it by the fact that I know I need to lead myself. <laughs> when people ask me what my greatest leadership challenge is, I always tell them, Michael, my greatest leadership challenge is leading others. Or I mean, it's leading myself, not leading others. It's easier for me to tell you what to do than for me to do it myself. And so people follow example. People do what people see. So if I can lead myself well, to be honest with you, I, I have a chance of doing really well with the organization. But if I can't lead myself well, how can I lead you well? obviously. We often hear from leaders that will say like they know what they need to do, yet they just don't do it. And they'll say, I wish I had greater self-discipline. Like how, how does one even develop greater self-discipline? I'm asked that question a lot. And I think the reason I'm asked the question a lot is because I'm, I, well, I'm still in the game and I'm 74. And people know that I get up every morning about five, five thirty at the latest. And, uh, put my bathrobe on, go to my home office and get out my legal pad. I literally write with a four color pen still and I start writing. And, and so people say, well, my, and, and I write maybe till 11, 1130 in, in late morning. And people say, well, you're, you must be incredibly disciplined to get up every morning at five or 530. And, and I say, well, not really. I, I don't think so. I think the word I would use instead of discipline is, is anticipation. The reason I am so excited about working is because I anticipate I'm going to help people. And I think that when it starts to get, become business as usual, when we begin to have an attitude, been there, done that, when we begin to lose the joy of the journey, our whole leadership begins to dull and we, we lose our effectiveness. And, 
and we don't want that to happen. So I think anticipation is just a, for me, that's where the energy comes from. That's where the second mile excellence comes from that, that you do. It all comes from the fact that I think I'm going to really help people. And if a person feels that, they really help people. And if they, they don't feel that, I think that they, that they fail. I was playing golf with a pro golfer recently, and um, I had a, a couple of amateurs like me with them. And I, I knew this golfer really well. And I told him when we got ready to play golf, I said, I'm so glad that we have you because you're so helpful with, the, with you, you know, the last time I played golf with you, you were helpful with the, with the players and you, you helped them read greens and you gave them golf tips. And they just came away with a rich experience. And, and I said, I'm just very excited that you're, you're going to be with us today. And I kid you not for those 18 holes. I mean, he was so helpful. But I created an environment of anticipation for him of what could be. And he saw himself in that picture and it became a reality. So, so speaking of anticipation, how do you do that for yourself, right? Because I imagine that, you know, a certain point for many business owners, that anticipation has become dread, Right. They would love to be excited. They'd love to anticipate. But maybe they, you know, they come into the office and they don't know if their team's going to be accountable. They know they're going to be putting out fires. They, they're just dealing with a slew of issues and they want to be excited. And yet they don't see the matrix quite yet. Well, I think it happens often. And I'm so glad you asked the question. But let me just say this. I've never seen anybody who succeeded by coming in the office and thinking negatively. And I've never known anybody to succeed saying, oh, I'm going to hate being with my team today. And oh my gosh, and I've got three meetings I don't want to be in. There's no energy there. There's no energy. Allowed. In fact, sometimes when I have a meeting with half a dozen people, one of the things I'll ask them is before we start the meeting, I'll say, what's your, what's your energy level today? And you know, from a one to a 10, talk to me. And, and you know, they may say, well, it's a six or a five. Well, that's good. That's, that's average. But then I say, but for today, we, you know, we got some real, we got some real issues to talk about. Honestly, I'm going to need you to be about a seven. You're going to have to be a seven for me today. If, if you're below a seven, probably, you, why don't you just leave the meeting? It's okay. We, you're not going to help us. We, I got to have sevens, eights, and nines today in the meeting. And what am I doing? I'm setting the table as a leader, and I'm setting the environment as a leader for them to know how to respond to me. So when we come to the office. And we're not anticipating something good. The first thing I would do is I'd say, don't go in the office. Let me talk to you. Why is it so bad? Why don't you anticipate? Why is it that you feel that today's going to be a, a boring drudgery day? I mean, let's talk about it. And almost always, it's the person. You know, you almost if you, if you fix the leader, you, you fix the organization. And if you don't fix the leader, you don't fix the organization. Everything, again, rises and falls on leadership. So there is no energy in going into the office and feeling like it's, you know, it's going, oh, here we go again. One more time. Been there. Hey, or, or boredom. I mean, who, I mean, who wants to follow a boring leader? Been there, done that. Okay. People migrate to people who love them and, and who love what they do. And, and when you love your people and you love what you do, now all of a sudden, you create a, a bar. I mean, again, are there sevens in the room today or is your energy level three or four? You want to keep that energy level high and you keep that energy level high by, by going in yourself and, and having high expectations for what you're going to accomplish.
you know, when, when a company starts, the entrepreneur typically plays a very pivotal role in the company culture, you know, as well as client relationships. But as that business grows, you know, it eventually seems like it becomes impossible for the leader to be intimately involved with every team member and every client to the degree that, you know, that makes it feasible. How can you make the company culture and client relationships the best possible at scale so that everyone feels valued and, and appreciated? Well, I think that's a challenge for anybody. And, and, and obviously, the ability to develop and train other people to carry the load is essential. I, I always say that what I try to do is add value to leaders who multiply value to others. And, and so what we're always trying to do is we're trying to raise up leaders. How big can your company come when you're starting to talk about scale? They can grow to the number of good leaders you have. And uh, if you have three good leaders today, there's so much three good leaders can do with the people. And you say, well, I would like to get bigger. Well, then you need to go get leader number four. You need to get leader number five. And, and sometimes you can bring them in and they're already a leader. Sometimes they come up from within and, and, and you develop them as leaders. But here's what I know. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So whenever you're trying to grow your company, you have to, first of all, have a, a leadership culture. You have to people, and then you have to have a, a real equipping, empowering arm in your organization where, where you equip them on what they need to do, but then you empower them to go out and do that. And, and what I have found is that if I'm a controlling leader and I have to know everything and I have to make all the decisions, I become a, a major limitation to the growth of my organization. My growth, my organization can only grow to the level of my own skills and my own time and my own influence. And so the only way that you can grow a company is to grow leaders. And so I, I think developing a leadership culture in your company, having uh, intentional programming and planning in your organization and training that allows them to develop more leaders and then letting them run with the ball, let him run with the ball. And, and, and I know the answer, you know, I had, a, in fact, I had a person one time come to me and say, you know what, I get so tired of training people. I, you know, I get them on the team and I train them and equip it and I get them just really ready to roll and they get good. And he said, and then they leave, they leave. I, you know, I just, I spent all this money, you know, a year and a half of time. And, and they looked at me and said, is there anything worse than training somebody and working hard and then having them leave your company. I said, well, yeah, I can think of something. They said, well, what would that be? I said, not training them and having them stay. That's, that's a lot worse. And so I think that when we develop a leadership culture of, of empowerment and equipping, and we begin to let other people take it in territory and uh, let them get some experience under the belt and, and let them get some wins and losses. And, and I think the mistake is we, we say again, well, they can't do it as well as I can do it. Well, that isn't the issue. The issue is the fact if you keep doing it, you're going to limit yourself. So in power, and, and will they make mistakes? Of course. Will they fail? Of course. But I can't, let me just stop for a moment and say to you, I think this is another loss. I think that we have not done well for ourselves when we try to separate failure from success. And it's kind of like success is over here and, and we want to be successful, but boy, you don't want to, you don't go there. You don't, you don't want to fail. So we really talk about success and we don't talk about failure and, and we just kind of separate them. And that's not realistic. Failure and success should never be separated. They should always be together. And so when I work with people and equipping and empowering people, I share with them, I say, now let me explain something to you. You're going to have some mess ups here. You are. And it's going to be okay 
because the value of, of messing up is, is that you become aware and you learn and you, and you change. And so it's okay. It's okay. And so we're going to let you have a few misses because we want you to learn and grow. In fact, in our John Maxwell team, we developed what we call a cycle of success. This may be really helpful to the attorneys. May, hopefully this will help you. It's a circle. It's a circle of success, really. It's a cycle. It keeps going around. And there are five components of it. And the five components are, are we, we test, fail, learn, improve, and then re-enter. And then we do it again. We test. I mean, it, this is a cycle. This isn't a journey. If it's a journey, I may pass and never come back again. No, no. We constantly come back to these five things. But I want you to think of it as a, as a cycle that grows. So test, fail, learn, improve, re-enter. Test, fail, learn, improve, re-enter. Now, here, here's what I want you to catch. When you test a lot, you fail a lot. Well, what's the value of failure? Why, why do you not separate success and failure? Because... Failure has much to teach us. The value of failure is what you learn from it. So when people say, oh, this was a bad time of my life. COVID, COVID-19, oh my gosh, was a terrible time of my life. Okay, I got it. We, we didn't like that. What did you learn from it? How did you get better from it? So it's test, fail, learn, and improve. The value of failure is to learn, and the value of learning is to improve, and the value of improving is that you get to re-enter back in the organization at a higher level than you've ever been, and so the cycle continues. And I think that is really essential in empowerment, in scaling, understanding how it works, and being comfortable with the fact that you're going to have some misses, but that's how you learn, that's how you, that's how you grow, and that's, that's how you get better, really. John believes that it's essential for a leader to practice humility, recognizing the value in failures as learning opportunities. Matt Frazier, five times CrossFit Games champion, adopted a similar perspective while training as a professional athlete, seeing his weaknesses as opportunities to develop new strengths. This mentality drove Matt to dominate his competition and earn the well-deserved title of the fittest man on earth. I asked Matt to explain CrossFit to our listeners and why it's unlike any other sport on the planet. So basically, showing up to a CrossFit competition, it's being prepared for any physical activity. Weightlifting, gymnastics movements like pull-ups or ring muscle-ups, um, handstand push-ups. So weightlifting, gymnastics, running, swimming, biking, odd object like strongman events, powerlifting events, Olympic weightlifting, basically anything physical. The way I always kind of break it down is I could walk into any powerlifting gym and find someone that can out squat me. I can show up to any college track meet and find someone that can outrun me in the mile. So, you know, I'm not trying to squat 600 pounds and I'm not trying to run a four minute mile. I'm trying to squat 500 pounds and run a five minute mile. And then if you can check off both those boxes, all right, now who can do 30 unbroken muscle ups? Who can swim a 500 meter under a certain time limit, you know? So it's basically just trying to be good at everything and not really excellent at any one specific thing. I'm just trying to be even keel across the board that no matter what you throw at me, I'm going to get through it. We've had events where it's like a one rep max uh, squat clean and you can show up to any probably high level national event or like you go to the world championships and our clean doesn't really chalk up to what they're doing. But now ask, find one of those guys that can even break an eight minute mile. And so it's like, you know, I, I did a squat clean at 380 pounds, but then I'm also running 
like a five minute mile. So you're trying to find the combination of these two things. So, you know, it's just a constant game. There's endless combinations of movements or time domains, and it's just trying to perfect all of them. So at what point do you essentially decide to go all in on CrossFit, right? To say like, you're not going to go down the route of, of engineering. You're going to go all in. So I competed my first, I'd say two years at the CrossFit game. So at the world championships of CrossFit while I was still a full-time student. And then I graduated. And after I've been to the world championships twice, I've been on the podium twice. I have enough support um, from sponsors and, you know, just from, prize money at competitions that I was like, okay, I can do all right. You know, just from the support from sponsors, I know I'm not thriving. I'm not going out and making retirement type money, but I can get by. And I think I, I was just like, you know, the, the desk job will always be there. You know, if I want to take a year or two gap between college and work, roll the dice on myself and kind of see what I'm capable of, see if I can make something of this. All right, I'm good. But then, you know, it was just like I graduated college and the job fair was at school and professors were kind of like, hey, like, you know, what ones are you interested in? Do you want letters of recommendation, anything like that? And I was like, I don't think I'm going to go. And they, the obvious concern look of someone that knows like, hey, you did great in school. This is what you did it for to get a good job. And then just seeing, seeing me be like, nah, I think I'm good. I think I'm going to roll the dice over here. I, I think that was the moment that I was like, okay. I'm going to give this one honest shot because after the 2015 season, I came second place for the second time. Huge disappointment. The whole year I was, I was in school. I was trying to have a social life. I was, you know, juggling all these other things and I wasn't dedicating everything to the sport. I was like, all right, I want to do one year where there's no what ifs. I want to do one year where it's like, oh, what if I wasn't distracted by a girlfriend? One year, where, what if I had a better sleep schedule, better diet, better training regimen, all this stuff. I told myself, I'm like, all right, I'm going to do one year of not a single sacrifice and see what the results are. And in the grand scheme, like a year flies by. Like a year is such a tiny little sliver that I was like, okay, I'm going to do everything. So th there were some moments of that year that were super disappointing, you know, having to miss out on life events, you know, like, my buddy's getting married and I can't go to his bachelor party or li little things like that, you know, or just not having a girlfriend, being alone. But I was like, all right, after this year, if I didn't like the results, if I don't get the results I want, if the whole process was just miserable, well, I'll go back. I'll go back to those other things. But I won, you know, after a year of that dedication, I won the world championships. I won by the largest margin of victory ever in that competition. And I was like, oh, that was all worth it. It was great. And so then after that, it was finding more places that I can get a little bit better and dead, getting more dedicated to it. And then, you know, I just kept building off that. And then at some point it was like, oh, I'm, I'm never going to be an engineer. This is it. <laughs> this is way better than sitting behind a desk. So, you know, it just kind of built organically, you know, it's just like, the opportunities just got a little bit bigger each time. So it wasn't like an overnight change. It was just piece by piece. But I think one big factor in all of it, you know, I, I've actually talked to a friend about this, you know, it's super, the super sexy things of, you know, burn all the ships and go all in, don't give yourself another option. I did the exact opposite. I set up my life 
so that there was as little risk as possible. I lived in my parents' basement for as long as possible so that I didn't have bills. You know, I drove an old, old beat up car that I bought for 300 bucks so that I didn't have a car payment so that I was able to afford to live this lifestyle with this huge, huge risk. But then there's no pressure. It's like, if I go to this competition and I fail, I'm not letting down my family. I'm not losing my house. I'm not losing my car. So I literally tried to live as close to zero expenses as possible so I could afford to take this risk. And then, you know, it just kind of built up, built up slowly from there. And I was like, oh, okay, now I can afford to get a house. Now I can afford to get a, a reliable car and all these different things. But yeah, I think it's just so common to hear this going all in, you know, throwing risk to the wind and not caring. It's like, I didn't do that. <laughs> but then 2019 comes around and this was, this was an interesting year, right? I remember you faced a, a bit of adversity and a questionable situation, right? But at the same time, it, it wasn't this huge margin of victory. You were almost coming from behind that entire, their entire games. Yeah. 2019, you know, there, there was a couple different factors that played into it, you know, so that in 2019, they went with a format in the competition that, it was just out of left field. Every year they're changing the rules. They're changing the qualifying procedures. They're changing the scoring. It really puts you in a test of like, okay, who can accept the things that they cannot change? It's all right. You know, what is the scoring system? Cool. I'm trying not to argue. I'm trying not to let it rent space in my head. I'm not listening to rumors. I wait until I hear the facts of what it is. And then I put my attack plan together. And so, you know, they announced the scoring system and they're doing cuts throughout the week of like after event four, we're cutting down to the top 20 athletes. After event five, we're cutting down to the top 10. There's nothing I can do about it. It's not an ideal. I don't, I don't think it worked well. I think it looked terrible. And I think it negatively affected the scoring in terms of like you could afford a bad, a bad finish early on. And then you hope that your strength showed up later in the week. And, but it was, it was a great mental test of, okay, this isn't what you want. This isn't ideal. This doesn't work well for you, but you don't have a choice deal with it. So, you know, there's a combination of the scoring system. I got hit with a pretty rough penalty early on that, you know, it stripped, I think it was like 30 or 40 points and, you know, a, a winning event is a hundred points. So it was a pretty big hit. But then once again, by the end of the weekend, I was thankful it all happened because the three years prior to that, when I've won, it was by a large, large margin of victory. And so people started thinking that, oh, he, he only competes well when he doesn't have any pressure. He doesn't do well under pressure. And I remember thinking, hearing people say these things and telling them, you know, just because you've never seen me compete under pressure doesn't mean I'm not good at it. Be better. Put me under pressure. And so then... It happened. I remember the specific event. I remember where I was standing. I remember everything about that. And I was down by 50 points. And I had a great opportunity to gain a large chunk of those points back. And all I heard was the criticisms. All I was hearing was the commentators, the other competitors saying that I don't do well under pressure. And I remember telling myself like, all right, good, good. They say you don't do well under pressure. Let's show them. Let's shut them up. You know, this is an opportunity that you haven't been put in before. Let's rise to the occasion. And it's a very freeing feeling having your back against the wall because you're already failing. You can't get worse. 
just swing for the fences and try to connect and knock it over the fence. And uh, a moment like that was great because then it, it was an opportunity like this, the last weakness that people have seen in me. This is the one situation that I haven't been in. I get to prove it to everyone that, yo, I'm good at this too. Yeah. So, you know, it, that one worked out in some ways it was stressful. In some ways it was very freeing of there's no pressure on me. I'm in second place. All I can do is go up. So it was nice leaving that competition, knowing that like, okay, I don't have to be in the lead going into the final event. I don't have to be in the lead by a hundred points to, to win or perform. I can do that too. And what was the feeling like at that event, basically finishing in first place by the narrowest margin of victory, probably it's what, like 2010. It was a big relief, obviously of like, okay, whew. because, you know, I've been training with this one goal of, you know, breaking the record for the amount of consecutive wins and that competition, I felt like things were literally going against me, you know, like the penalty that I got, it was an equipment malfunction. There was like literally nothing I could have done. And I didn't find out until after the event was over that something went wrong for the competition. I'm thinking like, man, if it's because of that error that it derails my entire career goal, like it doesn't feel good. You know, it's not like I, I worked my ass off and because this a sandbag fell out of my backpack and I didn't realize it. Well, now my career's over or like not my career's over, but that's what it feels like. It was incredibly stressful with that. And it was super disappointing to think that that could be a reality. But then at the same time, going out for the last event, it was a very powerful feeling walking out on the floor. And so the final event was 30 clean and jerks, 30 ring muscle ups, 30 snatches. So it's a great workout for the guy that's like right on my heels, but going out there and like in my head, there, there was no option. It was like, no, I'm winning this event. It doesn't matter how much better you are than me at this. The amount of passion that I have behind this, there's no skill level that can trump it. I am willing to go to lengths and depths that I know that you are not willing to touch. So I went onto the floor for that last event, knowing that I was going to win. Like there was no doubt in my mind. It was like, you can be better than me at this, but I will hurt and suffer tenfold of what you will. And I know that for a fact. And sure enough, like he was much better composed through the workout. He attacked it much more appropriately, but I went into it knowing like, no, I'm going to hit this thing aggressively. And you know, it wasn't the best strategy by any means. It, it was a terrible strategy, but I wanted to rely on, on my heart rather than like my muscles as corny as that sounds, because I knew I can put myself into this deficit and still pull through because it's what I want. It's what I've decided is already happening. And looking back at all this, like, has there been, like, if you had to describe what's driving you throughout all this, like to, to be the best, to ultimately, you know, have such excellence, like what's, what's the why behind it all? There's a million different reasons. A couple of them are reoccurring, kind of dependent on the mood. You know, every, every day in the gym, I'd say like in the gym, there's probably dozens, dozens of different reasons why I trained the way I did in the gym, but there was two or three that were re like a reoccurring theme. I'd say the most common one was like, I want to have a cool fucking story when I'm old, whether it's I'm talking to my kids about my career, I'm talking to my grandkids, wh whatever it is. I want to have a cool story. That was the biggest thing I admire from my dad when he would tell me stories about his figure skating career. 
they were just cool ass stories of him traveling the world, having these life experiences. You know, he and my mom met in figure skating, but just, I, I wanted to have a cool story. I didn't want to have a story of like, oh, I competed at the CrossFit game once, once or twice. I did all right, finished middle of the pack. No, like I won that. At the time, it was the most event wins ever. It was the biggest margin of victory. I wanted to have a cool fucking story to tell people. And then the other theme was like, I want to have a life that I want to live, not a life that I have to live. And by that, you know, it's, I don't ever want to be constrained by like a financial situation. of like, oh, I have to live in this part of town because that's what I can afford. I have to drive this car because that's what I can afford. I wanted the freedom to live the life that I wanted. And so I don't even like when it comes to earning money, I don't even, I don't give a shit about the money. I care about the freedom that it provides. I don't have to work for a bad boss. I don't have to show up on Monday for hours. I don't have to show up on the weekend to work overtime. I wanted the freedom to do whatever I wanted. So, you know, if, if I don't have a passion for a year, yeah, I can sit at home. I don't have to go flip burgers to, you know, pay the rent or whatever it is. No, I wanted that freedom. For me, when I was competing, it was like, no, if I want that freedom later on in my life, I need to do these shitty rowing intervals. I need to make it really, really hurt. It's not enjoyable. I don't like doing rowing intervals. I don't like doing heavy sets of back squats. There's nothing enjoyable about that. But the sense of pride and the freedom is going to provide down the road. That's what I'm after. I remember some, someone asked me like, hey, do you, have an, do you have an addiction to suffering? And I was like, no. Like not even in the slightest. I don't enjoy it at all. I have an addiction to what the product of suffering is, of putting in those hours, doing the things that I have to do so that later on I can do the things that I want to do. It's just always working for that better tomorrow. I want to give a huge thank you to every single guest who's joined me over the past several months on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. And I want to thank you, yes you, for subscribing to this podcast and your commitment to learning and growing as a leader. For more information on this episode, see the show notes in your podcast app or visit GameChangingAttorney.com. Attorney.com.